If you could please take your seats. My name is Stu Kenneborough, and I've been with Iron Man from the beginning. And it is my distinct pleasure this morning to be able to introduce to you our guest speaker, the Reverend Dr. Charles Cooper. Charles, yeah. Charles was called into ministry at a very young age, and he began preaching and teaching even as a boy. But he understood the importance of, of knowledge and training. And so he went to the best schools and has opened himself up to the spirit to be able to understand God's word in a very unique and purposeful way. And what that's done is that's allowed him to work within God's army in a lot of different ways. He's been a pastor of a church on several occasions and he pastors a church right now here in Winter Garden. He's been a teacher on a variety of levels. Probably the most notable is when he was uh, a professor at Moody Bible Institute. And every year received that award that teachers get from students for being the best teacher on the staff. Um, he has taught small groups, large groups. Uh, the time that we spent a lot together was when we were both working in a ministry called Sola Scriptura, which was focused on the authority, authenticity, and um, uh, application of God's word. And in that, Coop traveled all over the world to talk about those very things so that people would understand they could trust the Bible. But his specialty in that case was on prophecy and end times. And that's what he's been teaching to people for the last, uh, what, 20 years, 30 years? He's, a he's written books. You may not know it. He participated in some of the Bible translations. He's written his own study Bible. He has... Um, uh, worked in a variety of different areas, counseling. Uh, he uh, works with underprivileged uh, men and women, uh, helping them to understand scripture. He works with me at the uh, Central Care Mission, working with guys who have had addiction problems and helps them to understand they can, that they can understand scripture. And so uh, he is uniquely qualified to speak to us, to teach to us. But I want to tell you one more thing, and this is the thing that by knowing him for a while, I can, I can tell you for sure. In the military, we used to say that Coop was the kind of guy that was leaning forward in the foxhole. And what we meant by that is uh, he was ready, he was prepared, and he was eager to take on the mission. Now, as a result of his training and a result of the kind of guy that he is, it's been my experience with him over the years that I've known him that God gives him special insight into Scripture. So what you're going to hear this morning isn't just a guy who is going to comment on a bunch of Internet things that have been written out there, and you're going to hear his thoughts on it. And you're not going to hear a guy who's doing a warmed-over version of some other teacher's devotional. Most of what Coop shares coming straight through the Spirit from his unique understanding of the, of the Scripture that he'll share with you. And so sometimes it's out there, and sometimes it's stuff you haven't heard before. But I'm going to tell you right now, in my experience, it's worth listening to because he is tuned in. So, gentlemen, let's give him another round of applause, Dr. Charles Cooper. Thank you, buddy. Thank you very much. That was very kind of you, Stu, baby. Um, 
met Stu uh, 20 some years, I guess, I don't know, um, military man, and uh, I never served, um, never had the, I was either too young or too old when they needed somebody. So I never got a chance to serve, but I would have. I had to. And uh, I loved Stu because he had come out and he was fresh. And uh, he still had his hair cut the right way. And he still uh, walked the right way, straight up. So that's, uh, that's always encouraging. Uh, many of you men are probably, I know, uh, from through some means, uh, somewhere I've seen you. I've seen um, you at one time or another. And I was very honored that David would ask me to come and uh, kick off this year on this particular topic because uh, I am absolutely convinced that no one can set this in the right context but me. Um, uh, nobody else. <laughs> um, just in terms of thinking right and correctly about uh, this subject of apologetics. Um, uh, some, uh, some time ago, it hasn't been that long, we were uh, confronted one uh, morning by a gentleman who um, we discovered after the fact had um, broken up uh, with his girlfriend. She broke up with him and decided that she didn't want to be with him anymore and uh, gave him his walking papers. A long uh, list of arguments ensued him, uh, he trying to convince her that he uh, was uh, deserving of her and couldn't live without her, and she doubled down and said, no way. Um, he uh, ended, that ended about 2 a.m. in the morning, um, about uh, 5.30, a little before 6, he got in his car. He got on the 408 going, <laughs> Um, uh, west on the eastbound lane uh, fast as he could and killed a man, um, if I remember correctly, who was either just entering retirement or was about to retire. He decided that he could not live in this world uh, without her, and his uh, way of dealing with that was to kill himself and somebody else in process. I remember it because the ensuing discussions in the digital world was uh, how can God um, allow that to happen? Uh, and of course, some people concluded that there must not be a God in order to let something terrible like that happen. Of course, that standard operating procedure for the world right now is to attack whenever something tragic happens and it seems like it happens on a regular basis. Uh, they challenge the existence of God because in their world, a good God would not allow bad things to happen if he was powerful enough to do something about it. Therefore, they conclude that he must not be all-powerful or he is not all-loving or there's some kind of shortage in his uh, power source that he is able to work. And so we Christians, unfortunately, what we do in trying to respond to that is that we try to rationally and logically argue for God's existence based on these claims that we have. But... I want to tell you this morning, as you begin this topic for the next six months, you need to, come, you need to keep something clearly in mind, in my opinion. To the question, does God exist, you should answer only to those he chooses to reveal himself. Because that's a fact. You cannot, you will not, you shall not abridge 
uh, God's ability to reveal himself. Now, before Adam, in the garden, logic and reason was divinely inspired and divinely competent. That is, Adam was a brilliant man and had no limitations on his ability to know. He only had a limitation to not know something because God said it. After Adam, however, any information about God to you is revelation only. You cannot, you do not get to God any other way. There is natural revelation. Natural revelation is God's way of planting in his creation evidence of himself. And those who are able through his empowerment will see him and can see him. So you standing beside an unbeliever looks at an incredible sunrise and your mind first thought is, look what God did. He looks at it and said, look at the Big Bang. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> totally two different conclusions looking at the same evidence. Natural revelation cannot get a man to God. It can only make him appreciate God once God is known. You only get to God through personal revelation. That is, God has to reveal himself. And without his self-revelation, you will not know that he exists that he is there. Okay? John chapter 6 verse 4 says, no one comes to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. Fact. John chapter 6 verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the father. John chapter 14 verse 6. Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Now, Jesus is setting forth a very important principle here that access, that is, God consciousness, is only possible through the revelation of God. It's very important. God consciousness is necessary in order for a man to come to the, to the point of gospel hearing. You don't get to gospel hearing without first God consciousness. You don't come to God consciousness without the revelation of God, only through his doing. Now, it's important because we live in a world, we Westerners, we as Westerners here in the West, living in America, the most educated country the world has ever known, uh, relatively speaking, um, we think science is the reason for everything. We, I think a lot of people just elected a president because he said he's, you got to follow the science. So we felt like somebody wasn't following it, and now we're going to follow the science, and science is going to get us to wherever we want to get to. <laughs> it will not get you to God. In fact, there are two uh, things that I want to make clear today. Number one, man cannot reason his way to God's existence. You cannot look at logic and allow it to bring you because it will not. It will take you away from God. I, I, I looked at a man's body all broken and all, um, uh, you know, mango, just, uh, just a human existence, and I felt so sad for uh, this man. He was considered if not 
the one of the most brilliant human being this world has ever known. As he sat in a chair and could not talk through his voice, his conclusion is that nothing created something. And his last book before he died was an argument for nothing creating everything. That was brilliant. <laughs> he believed that he could reason to the existence of God, and since he was unable to find him at the end of his reason, therefore God must not exist. In the cleverness of man and in his brilliance, he has uh, deduced arguments for what he believes establishes the existence of God. If you have done any research, you know that there are three arguments in which there are branches off of that. So there are all kinds of sub-arguments. But in the, in the main, there are basically three categories. One is called ontological teleological and cosmological. These arguments are basically using logic to deduce an irreducible. When you take all of the facts and you draw them down to the irreducible minimum, it should bring you to the conclusion that God exists. Ontologically, they say the ability to conceive of a perfect being, given that I'm not perfect, if I'm able to conceive of a perfect being, given that I am not perfect, there must be a perfect being. Because there would be no reason to conceive that there is one if there wasn't. So therefore, we can conceive that there must be a God because we can conceive that there is one. Okay? Ontological, teleological. says, now based on design, guys, as you look around and all that you see and it's complexity, complexity demands designer. This is called a teleological argument. It said, therefore, if the complexity of creation and what we see, even the man himself, it should bring us to the conclusion that there had to be an ultimate designer given the complexity of the watch that is on your arm. Cosmological argument says there has to be a first cause. There had to be something that started it all. It could not have started from nothing. There had to be what the guys call an unmoved mover, something that was the ultimate before which everything else derives its existence and its import. Now, obviously, these arguments are used and they are people use them and they try to convince people that this proves the existence of God. They prove the existence of God only for someone who has come to the point of God consciousness and God has revealed himself. Otherwise, they do not, they cannot, they will not get to God. So number one, man cannot reason his way to God's existence. And number two, man does not stumble on God by accident. You don't just be walking along one day and all of a sudden thump your toe and say, ah, that's them, that's them. It must be God out there. No, it doesn't happen that way. You need to understand that God is not interested in proving his existence. He is not interested in having you deduce his existence so that you have a basis upon which to conclude that your choice to not believe was well-founded. He has no interest and will not help you to that end. 
Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, period. That is a faith statement. Can you believe Stu got up tonight, uh, this morning, and he introduced me. He said, okay, this is who this guy is, this is what he says and what he does. That's typically what we do. Because we believe that there needs to be an introduction in order to appreciate what we're going to hear and see. It validates, gives him proof that it's worth listening to. Then how do you explain Genesis chapter 1 verse 1? You mean God is going to expect me to believe that he exists, that he can create something out of nothing, and that he was standing somewhere in nothing, on nothing, with nothing, and that he then created everything out of nothing standing there. And he expects you to believe that without any proof that he exists. How could you write a whole book, 66 chapters, 66 books in the Bible, and not one of them contain irrefutable proof that he exists? How could you not at least give us a heads up you say you're the greatest thing that the world will ever know, and yet you cannot give me an infallible proof of your existence or a rational, well-reasoned argument that would draw me to that conclusion. You begin your book that I'm supposed to read and obey with a statement that is so contradictory to the human notion that out of nothing you made something while you were standing in nothing yourself. Because God is not impressed, nor is he wants to be impressed with you. He is in and of himself. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And we, of course, men, do what we do, mess up the intent of Scripture. When Peter says that we need to be ready to give a defense, you need to understand what he meant. First of all, the word defense comes from the Greek word apologia. Apologia is the word we get our apologetic from. Apologia simply means to be ready to give an answer. That is, it suggests that we might want to be able to speak for ourselves, which is really what the word means, to speak for yourself, to defend yourself. In this verse, he is not saying that you need to defend the existence of God because you can't. He is not imploring you that you need to always be ready when someone asks you, is God real, that you can defend the existence of God. That is not what the verse means. The verse says that you are not, you are trying, you will give an answer for why you believe God is revealed to you. You are not trying to prove the existence of God. You are testifying to God's revelation of himself to you. You are saying, hey, this is what he means to me. This is what he's done for me. This, I cannot tell you whether he is to you. I don't know what he's done for you. Maybe he's done nothing for you in your estimation. I don't have a clue. That's not my business. But I can tell you what he's done for me. That is where you start. You don't start with an unbeliever. I was never more dejected, disappointed, and just outright 
disappointed in the book written by good man. I mean, you know, he's a good man. But he started at the wrong place. He started with the, the testimony of an unbeliever and felt it necessary that he had to respond in order to logically try to reason that person into the existence of God. Gentlemen, I can only tell you that in my life, I cannot and would not, though I could, there is no reason for us as believers to be trapped by the world's cunning. The devil is very good at what he does. And therefore, if you fall into the trap of thinking that you've got to prove the existence of God in order for God to be a legitimate idea, you've already lost the debate. Because that's not what we're in the business of. We're not in the business of convincing men that God exists. We're in the business of convincing men that God has revealed himself to me. And that's personal. That's your own insight into who and what God is. So as we go off on this journey for the next six months, you're going to learn to articulate and to be more intelligent in talking about God with other believers. Not with unbelievers. You're never going to get to first base with an unbeliever if your goal is to first convince him that God exists. That is not where you start. You start with the fact of God's word. And in his word, he chose to speak to our need. That need is where we start. I can only tell you that in my life, having studied the arguments and having been to seminary and having done the doctrine, all of that stuff means absolutely nothing to a person whose heart has been broken by the misery of this world. It means absolutely nothing. It means to me because I have confidence in the God that I talk about, but it means absolutely nothing to them until I reveal that God loves them. It's amazing. It's amazing to me that the love of God, you've never met him, you've never seen him, you've never touched him, you've never heard him, but I can talk to you about his love and that his love will be the bond breaker between your heart and him, though you've never seen that. That's how God works. I can only say to you, gentlemen, this morning, as we wrestle with the reality of God for me and how much of his revelation of himself to me is genuine and authentic, that is where we have the power to change people's lives. The Apostle Paul came to the Corinthians, one of the most corrupt, evil societies the world has ever known. You wanted to cuss out a person, call him a Corinthian. You call someone a Corinthian, you was actually cursing. The word was, it was known to be so bad because they were such evil, vile people. Paul went in there, and the very first sermon that Paul preached was, let me tell you how we know God exists. No, it wasn't. In fact, Paul says, I did not come to you with clever speeches or with clever words or with flowery language. I came to you in the power of the Spirit of God. That's where the church is weakest, and that's why we appeal to reason and logic. That's why we believe epistemology is a better way, how we know stuff. We think we need to explain it on the basis of the world's record and the way they understand, rather than understanding that we begin with the power of God in his transformation. That's where you start. That's how you change, and that's how you bring men out of the hellhole that this world seems to be seeking in every day. 
perhaps that's why the church is so ineffective is because we don't demo power anymore. We become logical and reason. We spend 30 minutes on a Sunday morning listening to a rational, well-crafted, well-built documentation on why we are here. How sad. Because you're sitting there, some are sitting there having an affair with the woman that he just saw last night. Some are sitting there having just stolen money from their company. Some are sitting there having stolen from the government. Others are sitting there wondering what time they're going to get out and whether they're going to make their tea time. Mine's not on God, and it's certainly not on the rational power of God. Now, I'm not here to preach to you, men. I'm just telling you, don't let yourself get sucked. Don't let yourself get sucked into a hole of believing that it's ration and reason that we need here. It's not. It's power. It's power. And unfortunately, many of us have been made shame to even say the word. I can only give you my testimony this morning. I'm not going to spend uh, this precious time trying to reason you whom I hope are all believers. If you're not, uh, then I do not come to insult you, but I do come to impress you with the power of the Almighty, who can do for you only that which can be done for a man outside of the realm of who and what we are. We have no ability other than that which God has given us. I can only tell you that in my life, I am a walking testimony to the power of God. Any man willing to listen to me talk about me if I do it correctly, will come to the conclusion that there has to be a God. Because I cannot do what I've done in life, I don't believe, without the power of the Almighty. Acts chapter 14 verse 22 says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He says it is necessary if you want to be in the kingdom of God. Now, be in the kingdom means to participate in it, to be involved in the sovereign administration of God. He says that there are many tribulations to which you must travel to get there. If someone will give me the time just to talk about my life, that would be my testimony to the existence of God. Born as a black, I was born a black man in Arkansas in 1959. We lived in a two-room house, I remember, as a small child. It had no running water. It had no inside facility, no bathroom. It was outside. We, the pump, we did not have a pump for water at our house. The nearest pump was about a quarter of a mile away to which we would walk and fill up a container and bring water back to where we lived for bathing, cooking, and other means. In that situation, there were eight of us living in a two-room house. The kitchen had a wood-burning fire cooking stove. You had to put wood in it to cook. We had an ice box, a, a real ice box. So whenever someone made an extra 50 cents, would be delivered a block of ice that would be put in the ice box under a croaker sack in order to keep it from melting too fast. And if you had milk or you had something that you wanted to preserve, then you would put it in the icebox, but you only opened it when you absolutely positively needed to because that protected the ice from melting. When I began grade school at age six, it was discovered that I did not have a birth certificate uh, I was born, when I was born, the midwife, my 
great, great, great aunt who was the midwife for all of the women in that community. When she delivered me, it was a problem delivery. She couldn't deliver me. They had to call a doctor. By the time the doctor got there, he was within seconds of getting me out in time for me to survive. He thought she sent the record in. She thought he sent the record in. Neither one of them put the record in. And so as far as the government was concerned, I was not born. It took two years in order to get a birth certificate. I had to go in front of a judge with my great-grandmother's Bible in which she wrote the date of my birth in that Bible. And on that basis, I was granted citizenship, American. I began school first grade. I was eight years old. The kids made fun of me. Bullying has no reason today. I was made fun of because I was eight years old in the first grade. They thought I was dumb, stupid. They thought I should be in a special needs class because, hey, you're eight years old, you're in the first grade. What happened? You must have flunked at least twice. You can't get it right. No. Then I sat on a course to get that done. So not only was I born black, but I was born poor. We had absolutely nothing. You've heard the old expression, we were so poor that we couldn't afford two O's. Well, we didn't even have two O's. We, we just had to pee in the R pole. We had nothing. We received nothing from anybody. We were too proud to do that, and so we made it on our own. My parents picked cotton. I picked cotton one day in my life. So I was not only was I born a black man, born into a racist society that depicted black people in the most heinous ways possible. I was born at a time to be born black was not bad enough, but to be dark black, which I am, was doubly bad because I was prejudiced against not only by white folks, but I was prejudiced against by black folk. Because black people have a thing about yellow-skinned black people versus black-skinned black people. So you, you don't understand. Not only was I had a problem, but I had a problem in my own community in that they did not, black people had learned to not like dark black-skinned people because that was an indictment against them who were lighter-skinned who felt like they could live in society. I'm just telling you. So not only was I born black, but I was born dark-skinned black. Not only was I born poor, but I was born poor without any resources, without any kind of opportunities, without any kind of educational offerings. And here I am, eight years old, in the first grade, with not even clothes to go to school. I had no shoes. I went to school my first day at school, eight years old, no shoes. Not only that, got a black kid, poor kid, born in the rural south in 1959. What are the odds? If I was going to talk to a man about the existence of God, I wouldn't begin with an argument about why I know he exists out there logically, reasonably. I'd begin with my own life. Let me tell you where God took a poor, black, rule-born child, poor, in 1959. Let me tell you how he brought me from there to help, to allow me to stand in Parliament to sleep in a castle 
Let, let me tell you how he gave me the opportunity to stand in front of 70,000 men in a stadium and proclaim the gospel and have men respond in salvation with the call to come to be saved. Let me tell you how he caused me to go into a forbidden country that Christians are not allowed to go into and get in there and do my job and then be stopped by their secret service and be stamped persona non grata. Never able to go back. I can only tell you what God can do for people and how he does it through us and in us in order to convict the world of its sin. It is the power of the almighty, man. This is your testimony. This is your proof of God. This is where you start. What has he done for you? How has he radicalized your life? Where did he start with you? We all don't have the same stories, but I tell you what, what he brought you out of, what he's brought you through, and how he has sustained you is the power of your testimony for the proof of God. No attempt to argue for the existence of God will be effective with an unbeliever because he doesn't have the capacity to understand it. It is foolishness to him. The fool concludes in his heart that God does not even exist. God proves who he is by what he does. That is his proof. That's why Genesis 1-1 can begin the way it began, because God proves his existence by what he does. And only those to whom he reveals himself will have a chance to appreciate that. I hope, gentlemen, as we walk through this next uh, six months, that you're going to be deepened in your convictions, not because you're going to use that to prove his existence to the world, but that there will be no doubt in your heart of his ability. Our problem is he's too small. He's too weak. We struggle with whether or not he really has all the power he says he has. It's my hope, gentlemen, that you will become a walking testimony for Jesus Christ. As Jesus was walking with his disciples one day, they saw a man born blind from birth, and the disciples, brilliant theologians that they were, entered into an immediate discussion about who sinned, this man or his family, that he was born blind. To which Jesus says, neither. This man was born blind in order to be a display of the work of God. You were born the way you were born with the circumstances and situations of your life in order for you to be a display of the glory of God. Every day that you manifest the fulfillment of God's purpose in your life, you become a more powerful display for his glory. Men will believe on the existence of the Almighty by how you live so revolutionary contrary to the way everyone around you is living. The more dedicated you are to the fellowship of Christ, the more dedicated you are to becoming conformed to the image of Christ, the more a disciple you are, because a disciple is enough to become like his teacher, the more God can make you like Christ in both physical and spiritual, the most transformative your life will be in the lives of the people that you interact with. It's never about us. It's always about him.
Father, I pray for these men today who we live in the most learned society the world has ever known, and yet we are the dumbest animal we've ever seen. For we have a president who believes it's more important where people pee than where they pray. I pray God for the men of this room, iron men, that you would help us to be such a powerful source of light that darkness cannot dwell in our presence. May you help us, may you hold us, may you keep us in your hand. We want to make a difference because of what you have done for us. In Christ's name, amen.